This is the prodigal son story. And so you, it will not be on the screen. If you want to just listen to the story, that would be great. This is from Luke 15, 11 to 24. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had, and he traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. He went back to work, he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up. I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, he threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Happy New Year. So what text can we use to uh, help guide our thoughts, direct, direct our attention? Uh, but the story of the prodigal, uh, it's something that all of us know. And what I, one thing that I absolutely love about this story is it actually doesn't just give us some information about ourselves and about God, but it allows us to kind of look at the story of God and our story with God fresh on a constant basis. We're able to go back and look because, as you and I can probably admit, the spiritual life doesn't just kind of walk from beginning to end, but in the end, how many of you have noticed that there are repeated patterns that we have in our lives? There are times in which we go through much of what we read just in that story where we find ourselves really, really, really excited and passionate about God only months, years later to find ourselves asking very difficult questions. We find ourselves in acts of repentance, only to later on find ourselves in continued patterns of, patterns of sin. And so the story really gives us a framework for you and I to look at God and to look at ourselves, to be amazed at the difference between the two. And yet the prodigal always offers to you and to me an invitation into God's grace. But God's grace is a, is a complicated thing. 
Uh, it's complicated because it's difficult for us to truly comprehend. That's why we need really, really, really big adjectives to try to explain it. One adjective that totally surprised me was when one of my favorite preachers preached a sermon. Here's his title, The Offense in God's Grace. Offense? No, 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 no. There's, there's no offense. It's a wonderful thing. It's a, it's a splendid thing. It's, what do we, the song, you remember? It's an amazing thing. I don't know if I ever want to say that we're somehow offended by God's grace. Well, I guess that depends on how we're looking at it. When we're looking at it from our perspective, Jim, I am the one who is the recipient of God's grace. It's amazing. It's overwhelming. It's this undeserved gift, this unmerited favor. But just change perspective. And now all of a sudden I'm looking at somebody else who has squandered, who has not really appreciated between you and me, I feel like they're taking advantage. Now all of a sudden God's grace is not so much amazing as it is, well, it's still amazing, but I really think they should have, what? Done more to deserve it? That's the beauty of this story, is it really allows us to wrestle with it. When you look back, and I know Diane only read verses 11 through 24, so there are a few verses before it and a few verses after it that Jesus includes, that Luke includes for his audience. I'm going to focus mostly on the story that Diane read, verses 11 through 24. But the beginning matters. Jesus is telling this story, verse 1 of Luke chapter 15, because tax collectors, all kinds of, the text is saying there are many tax collectors and there are many sinners that are coming around and they are wanting to learn from Jesus. Sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? All of these people with broken lives looking to Jesus for help and assistance? Sure. But there are those people who are religious experts who seem to have a really good understanding of who God is and how this whole grace, sin, forgiveness thing actually is designed, and they're not pleased with the way Jesus is acting. They're finding themselves really questioning whether Jesus understands the holiness of God, whether Jesus understands the right covenant relationship that God would have with his people, because these people, you know, the tax collectors and the sinners, those that are exploiting their brothers and sisters of the Jewish faith, those that are just living their lives on their own terms, how could they ever be included in the fellowship of somebody who is devoted and dedicated to God? And Jesus looks at this tension and he begins to speak about the amazing offense of God's grace. And so he tells three stories. We're just gonna focus on the last one but the first two, and especially the repeated phrase after each story is told, underlines what Jesus wants us to know this morning. The first story, you know it. There's a guy that has 100 sheep, and he loses one of them. And then Jesus makes this statement. Which one of you, when you have 100 sheep and you lose one, don't leave the 99 to go after the one? I don't know if I would. <laughs> I really don't know if I would. I mean, after all, it's a sheep. And after all, 
I have 99. I mean, it looks like in the story, and I, I, for many years, I just kind of, I thought, oh yeah, everybody would do that. No? How many of you, when you've looked at stuff, your, your life, and you just kind of weigh it all out, and you go, oh, I don't know if it's worth it. I'll just find another sheep. I'll just wait till next season when they produce more sheep. Like, if it comes back, hey, that is great, but no. Jesus is underlining something. Leaving the 99 in search of the one. Although, actually, what Jesus is underlining is actually found in verse 7. If you have your Bibles, you can look there. We have new ones in the pews. CSB. Luke chapter 15, verse 7, when Jesus is describing what, 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 he's, what he's wanting them to hear, which is in response to, how can you hang around with sinful people like tax collectors? Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. That's strange. You're telling me that in God's economy, that if 99 of us in 2020 continue to remain like devoted and faithful and honoring to God, that God rejoices more in the one of us that comes into a deeper understanding of their brokenness and humbles themselves and comes home that there is more joy in heaven. There is more joy in God's economy of salvation in the one returning than the 99 who are faithful. I'll be honest with you, that's just not the way that I usually see things. I mean, I'm really, really glad that Jesus is inviting everyone, especially those people who have been marginalized and pushed to the edges of society. I just don't know if that's my math. I don't know if that's the way that I would work it out. And I think Jesus knows that that's not just intrinsically something that I think about and intrinsically the way I behave. And so Jesus tells another story about a woman who had 10 coins and loses one of those coins. And then he says, and which one of you, after you haven't lost a coin, wouldn't do everything you can to find that coin? I don't know if it was intentional or not. I was talking just right after first service, and I look down, and I see in the pew two pennies left by some high school student after first service. I don't know. Let's see if they come back. Which one of you, after leaving two cents in a pew after first service, don't leave the restaurant that you are eating at and come back and you find those two coins. I'm serious. I'm wondering if this is a test. How many of you, if you lost something and you had a bunch of it left over, would like rearrange your lives to go after that one lost thing? Like, I don't know if that's me. Maybe that's part of the point. Maybe that's part of the story, that part of the conviction that Jesus isn't just saying, man, I just want you to know how loving God is. No, what Jesus seems to be implying is, I don't think you, I don't think you can fully understand or appreciate just how much an all-knowing, 
all, I have to say it like this, you know, kind of loud and exciting, um, all-knowing, all-powerful, self-sustaining, um, without any compulsion. There's, I love that idea of God. Like, there's no force upon God that makes him act. And Jesus says, comparing this woman who throws a party, which I'm going to guess most likely costs more than the coin, that just doesn't add up. Verse 9, there is more joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Sometimes when I preach or teach about God's grace, and, and this should probably happen more often than it does, but sometimes when I preach about it, I will get some people who will say, okay, Jim, I loved what you had to say. I don't necessarily disagree with you, but can I just give you a word of caution? To which I like to respond, that's exactly why I'm here. I love to get words of caution. And I really do. I don't mind getting words of caution. What is your words of caution? And it'll be the you have email or a phone call or a text. And they'll say this. The way that you described God's grace, the way that you described his open invitation, I, I think just leaves room in the lives of individuals to take advantage of, to almost plan towards sinful living. That's why I, I really like more than sermons where it talks about God's invitation and his arms being open wide and welcome home and throwing a party. I, I like more of the sermons that describe the holiness of God and the righteous standards of God. Like I just think those are what, especially in our time and age, like if there was ever a time that we need to preach that, maybe that time is gone. Do you think young people today need to hear, God will love you no matter what, or you need to try harder and shape up? Andrea and I made a commitment that as we were raising our children, that we wouldn't tell them everything that we did when we were younger. Now, I know what some of you are saying. Coward, that's not authentic. Well, actually, we didn't try to pretend we were completely different people, but authenticity isn't just mindlessly speaking your past. And our concern was, you know where it comes from. My concern was, was not, see, because if, if here's what I thought was going to happen. If, if Andrew and I believed, okay, if we believed that we would just literally share with each of our children everything we did, and at the end of that story, each of them would look at us and then bat those wonderfully innocent eyes and then say to us, thank you so much, father of me and mother of mine, we are eternally grateful for you sharing the errors of your ways. And we have very um, meticulously taken notes. And we are going to diligently follow a different path than you and mom followed. And we, today we choose in front of you that the Lord is our Savior. And we, I mean, if we thought they were going to do that, we would have shared everything. But knowing human nature, because we know ourselves, we were concerned, and I still give this advice to young couples, don't try to pretend you lived life perfectly. But you've got to be careful sharing information because especially young people will hear that and they will use it more 
for their freedoms to explore. No, no, no. Not when they're 8, 9, or 10, but when they're 16, 17, and 18. When they're 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. 19, 20, 21, 22. 23 through 36. And 37 up to 39. My dad used to always say, we'd always describe 40 as this amazing year. And I understand kind of what he was describing. Because just most of my life, it's one thing to say, I understand the lesson of that. But then when in the predicament with the temptation, and the backdrop is that God will love you no matter what. How many of you have made the wrong choice? Believing that somehow you would be captured, you'd be rescued in that net from your free fall in sin. Grace. Like, do you get why this story is just so beautifully troubling? Do you get why that we have to be, like, intentional? I understand it. Every time somebody says, like, here's the word of caution, I want to say to them, I get it. I understand. I don't even know if I disagree with you. And I love the fact that the Bible has more than just the story. But this story gives us such insight into all the other stories of the Bible. I think it's good that we give our attention to it. And so usually when this story is preached, when I preach this story, it goes something like this. Who are you in the story? Diane read it, who are you? Because there are some of us in this room and we're the older brother. You know the older brother, right? He's the one that is kind of standing on the outside, casting judgment on his brother. Could have told you he was going to do that, Dad. Could have told you you shouldn't have given it to him, Dad. Could have told you he'd come back with his tails between the table, his tail between his legs, Dad. I could have told you that, brother. And then you and I, for a moment, go, "Yeah, that can be me." Who are you in the story? Now, it's always you're always going to be careful when you decide to assume the role of God. That's the Father, clearly, and yet. There seems to be, in Jesus' telling of it, and then Luke's retelling of it, and, and, and especially like the story of, of the Bible in the New Testament as it describes and keeps going back to what Jesus Christ accomplished and how we are to respond, I, I believe that Jesus wants us to act like the Father. Indeed, that's the problem with the brother. The dad looks at the son and says, listen, like, by the way, I'm, I'm the Father here. And my son is home and he's alive. How can we not throw this party? And he's looking at the older son and he's going, in essence, what's wrong with you? How can you, if you see my heart, how can your heart not be like my heart? And there are times where I just, I'm not only drawn to the father, but I'm encouraged to act like the father. And indeed, many of you, when you know, hey, guess what the story is today? It's the prodigal son. Great, I've got a prodigal. I want to know what to do. Ah, this isn't really a sermon for you today. Sorry. And I'm not going to give you a lot of tips and techniques on how to deal with a prodigal. Who are you in the story? 
I believe that, I, I, I hope I see more of the Father in me, especially as I grow in my Christ-likeness. I hope I see less of the older son. I just don't know how to escape that we're all prodigals here. I don't know how to escape the fact that every single one of us have to come to the realization that we are far from, from God and that we need him desperately and that I need to go home. I need, I need to be restored. We, we talk so often here about by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, we find peace with God. Why? Because sure, you and I kind of move in and around the story, but I just don't know how to escape that every single one of us sometimes are, sometimes are. I'm always the prodigal. I'm always him. You're always her. And maybe that's why God's grace is just so difficult for us to handle and for us to wrestle with in ourselves and in others. And so in light of what Diane said, because I'm, I'm like Diane in the sense, I love starts, I love new starts, I love new years, I love, um, I love at the end of the year when they have like the top clips of sports moments the top 10, you know, ESPN has top 10 for everything. The top 10 catches of the year, the top 10 events of the year, the top 10 mistakes. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. If it's a top 10 of the year, I love it. And then I wonder, what are going to be the top whatever of the next year? And then every year, at the end of the year, I'm, I'm, I'm always surprised, and, and uh, I've, I've missed a few the last few years, but you're watching like some kind of a program and then the music will change and then they'll say, I want to just share with you through this wonderful montage of pictures and music those people who have passed in the last year. And then they begin to walk through. How many of you saw one of these in the last few weeks, right? Just kind of recounting people that were here at the beginning of 2019 and were not at the end. And then you're watching it and it always takes longer than you think, right? You're kind of like, oh, okay, that's near. Oh, wow, no, they're going to keep going. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. You know, Andrew and I usually, hey, did you remember that so-and-so? Wow. Had no idea. I, I, I don't know about you, I'm very mindful of that. I'm very mindful at the start of things, just realizing that at the end of things, it's going to be different than I realized. Andrew and I started 2018, had no idea that her mom would not be with us at the end of the year. Just changes a person, doesn't it? As a staff, as a leadership, we pray for regularly you. And we ask questions like, have we seen so-and-so lately? And Do you know how so-and-so is doing? And, and please, our heart is never intended to, to somehow just talk gossipy, but just to genuinely care. Because very few people on January 5th, 2020, plan to um, completely dismantle and rupture their lives in the next 360 60 days. 
Like, I don't know a lot of people when they come and they say, yeah, like our marriage is over. We've been planning this for two years and we finally made it work. No, it's, it's a lot of, I have no idea how we got here. You don't, I promise you, you don't have children to pray for prodigals. Therefore, maybe it's good and healthy and appropriate at certain moments not to ask who we are in the story, but admitting that we're all prodigals, that we would ask the question, where in the story am I? Where in the story do I find myself today? January 5th, 2020. The first place, and, and, and by the way, again, I'm taking some liberty with the story. But the parts that I'm taking liberty with, I believe, are true biblically. And the first place that must have existed in the life of this young man was a time in which he was still at home and everything was going right and everything was going well. And he had no idea of the trajectory that his life was on. Clearly, I admit, it is outside the scope of what Jesus is trying to direct towards. But as we try to apply this story to our lives, let's admit that for every one of us, there is a time in which we're just enjoying life. Jim, like, chill out, bro. I show up on Sunday, January 5th, and you hit me out of nowhere. Yeah, it's kind of the point, by the way, that there are many of us in this room, just like the prodigal before he ever did anything, was just a son, just going through life, enjoying it, has no ill intent, does not want to break his father's heart, does not want to waste his father's wealth, does not want to live a life of desperation, does not want to have that long walk home. Forget tail between my legs. Like my head dragging along the way out of shame. And there was a time when he was, I don't know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. When everything looked fine. And had no, had no idea. And mom and dad had no idea of the direction that was going on. Now, now by the way, I, I talk about a particular age in which there's innocence, but as I've already pointed out and will continue to remind us, that this story isn't just, I wish the story was, oh yeah, I remember when I was, and then the good news is I'm at the end. No, we, we care a lot about this issue. So we have as one of our strategies here at Sunnybrook this, that we wanna help people understand their current spiritual condition and take responsibility for spiritual growth. That doesn't mean we believe that spiritual growth is something that you do and you manage and that you're in charge of. I'm not saying that. I would even argue that the number one way in which we take responsibility for our spiritual growth is by a surrender or a submission to the Spirit of God and the Word of God in the context of the people of God. But I think before we ever deal with the dangerous offense of God's grace... 
we might need to first spend a little bit of time just kind of assessing where we're at. And for many of us here in this room, we're not even really thinking about it. We're not really like walking through and assessing where we're at. We're just kind of, how many of you woke up this morning and thought, good morning, Holy Spirit. So grateful. I can't wait to go to church and to kind of hear your word, kind of just open up my heart and I'm here to receive and I'm just excited about it and I'm just excited to be with other Christians and God, I just look forward to see what this day and what this week and what this year is going to be. I'm here to serve you. How many of you, instead of that, did this? Oh, I gotta get up. Right? How many of you like drove here and, and you weren't thinking, okay, I gotta remember to surrender, I gotta remember to surrender? You're just thinking, oh, I hate being late, I hate being late, I hate being late. And it's the 1110 service, by the way, and I hate being late. Like, we're not paying attention spiritually to what's happening around us. And we're not paying attention to what's happening spiritually to, to, to those that are around us spiritually. In the end, we're just going through life day by day by day by week by month by year. And then it's 2020. Anybody else completely blown away by the fact that it's 2020? Yeah. Completely unaware. And not only of where you're at, but where you're going. Like you're not even making connection between the decisions that you're making because they just seem so innocent and trivial. Like I, I haven't robbed a bank. We always use like rob a bank and murder somebody as like our two, you know, paradigms. Isn't that kind of near the end of the road? Like isn't that not, that's not, that's not where we begin. It's the small things that lead to the big things. Honestly, when was the last time you just stopped and took some kind of assessment, allowing the Spirit of God and the Word of God and, and, and mature brothers and sisters in Christ to help you see where you're at and where you're going? See, that's why we talk about biblical community. That's why we talk about knowing the word of God. That's why we talk about being in a, in a relationship with God in such a way that we're constantly recognizing and responding to what the Spirit is doing. Because left to ourselves, we just don't pay attention. And so maybe that's you today. Spiritually unaware. And headed in a direction that you don't even intend but you're going there anyway. Maybe some of you are not at that stage. That was a stage you were in, but no, now you know where you're at, and it's not good. And so you find yourself right now, today, working up the gumption to leave. I don't know what I necessarily mean by that. I kind of mean a lot of things, to be honest with you. And I love the fact that that the Bible really doesn't give us like lessons on our spiritual lives. Now it's 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 there are stories about life, and that our lives have spiritual components. But in the end, it's like my life, and all of these things in my life are connected. 
My relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ, my relationship with my wife, my relationship with my children, my relationship with my neighbors, my relationship with my parents, these are all connected together. And so I don't know what I, I, don't know what I mean exactly, except I mean all of it. Just working up the gumption, here's what I'm trying to get at, is that there is a point in time in which we kind of rehearse, walk through the motions of what it's actually going to be like to stand in front of your dad before you ever get there. I want my inheritance. This is a, this is a silent time in a lot of our lives where none of us say a thing to anybody. We're just rehearsing the speech in our heads. And we really appreciate the confidence. Actually, no. We really appreciate the confidence that I am getting by you holding this in confidentiality. And the path that I am choosing is a dangerous path for a lot of people. I'm not ready. I'm not ready to go public with it. But I'm, I'm just kind of working it out and I'm testing it out. And, and, and this is a little bit of what happens when you hear the shocking news about people who have Last year in 2019, there were a number of well-known spiritual leaders who, uh, I'm, trying, I'm trying to use the words that they would use, like reconsidered, re-evaluated, and, and have chosen a different understanding of who God is and his plan for us, I think is how they would put it. We, we would talk about it more of like an abandoning of the faith. But before they could ever you know, put that on Twitter, they needed to work that out in their own minds. You know what I'm talking about. Big or small, we all do it. We all have like a life that everybody can see and then a life that we want no one to know. And maybe that's where you are today. And strangely enough, my advice to you is, is that I want you to recognize that God loves you and God cares for you. And he so eagerly desires for you to repent and to come home. Or actually, no. Repent and to stay home. He wants to spare you of the pain. He wants you to trust that the, the boundaries and the borders that he has placed in your life are there not just to confine you, but to give you like the life that he has designed for you. But there are many of us right now because we believe like our marriage is too hard or being faithful to our children. I mean, there's a lot of people that when they leave, they still stay. You know what I'm talking about? They're absently present. And, and I would say one of the most, um, it can seem to us innocuous, but it is incredibly dangerous is that spiritual absence and physical presence in relationships. 
Husbands and wives that no longer have important conversations on matters of faith. Um, I, I, the number of people that I talk to that will say things to me like, yeah, I probably need to be more honest with my wife about, like, I don't know if I'm ever going to come to Jesus. I think she's really excited that I go to church. I don't know if I'm ever going to get where she's at, and I don't even know if I care. What's he doing? Working up the gumption to just come out and say it. And that's where a lot of us are. And then some of us move forward. We find ourselves now enjoying life on our own terms. The inheritance is in our pocket. Now, now by the way, um, if we're going to be honest, I've thought about this actually, uh, maybe because my parents are getting older, but I've thought about this. Who wouldn't want their inheritance early? How many of you, in first service, so many people were like, I don't think I should be raising my hand. My mom's like right over there. <laughs> how many of you, if none of you your par- this is your parents' idea. How many, if your parents said to you, hey, I'll give you your, the inheritance now. How many of you would say, no, I want you to have it. How many of you would gladly take your parents' inheritance now if they were offering it to you? Thank you. I see that hand. Thank you. I see that hand. Mork and Weiss, I see that hand. And in celebration of this new freedom. And I just, again, it's a parable, right? Jesus isn't going that far into it. But as we apply it in our real lives, I'm sure the son kind of felt bad. Like didn't want to hurt his dad, but wanted the money anyway. And there are some of us right now in this room that are enjoying living our lives on our own terms. Like it's a, Small part of the story again, but there is a time in which this son is off, completely unfettered by his family's rules and his community's eyes. He can now do and live exactly the way that he wants, believing this to be this incredible sense of freedom. And maybe that's you. And and by the way, I'm not saying that you're having inappropriate relations. I'm not saying that you've robbed banks or murdered anybody. But it is still life on your terms. It is still not God at the center. It is still not in recognition that you are someone made in God's image, designed for his glory, intended for his purposes. No, it's you. On your own, doing what you want, and I'm trying to be a good citizen as I do it. And maybe that's where you are today. But by the way, like no matter where you are in the sequence, we're really glad you're here. <laughs> like we really are. Like I love the fact that we're not ever going to have a questionnaire. Hey, please check where you are in the box of the prodigal. And um, we have a room designed for you <laughs> here in the building where you will know. No matter where we are, we come in here. You're welcome here. And there are so many people in this room that are living life on their own terms. And if I could tell you anything from the story, it's this, that God loves you and God cares for you. And he knows that the path that you're on is not going to sustain you or to fulfill you.
and he wants you to come home. I don't know if you've gotten to the end of your rope. Some people do. But then after a certain moment, and actually this is what's interesting, sometimes when we think about this story, we think of the act of grace is going home and seeing dad. But in actuality, um, the first act of grace, maybe a greater act of grace, maybe grace is just bigger than I think it is, is coming to the realization, I, I need to go home. That's the first act of grace. To even have that gift or that awareness or that understanding, where did that come from? Well, when you wake up in a pig pen, no, actually I know people that live in pig pens. Like I know people that stay in really broken circumstances. Like I know people who do the math, man, my life is a mess and it's still better than going home. Man, I know that the decisions that I'm making are absolutely ruining my life, but you know what? It's better than returning. Like, I know people that make that decision. So don't just think that a really, really difficult circumstance that happens in, it's always be somebody else, in your life is somehow automatically, without God's, without God's assistance, without God's sovereignty, that your own terrible circumstances are going to automatically lead you home. No, the first act of grace in this sense is realizing home is better than this. And are you there? I had a college student who said to me one time, um, my parents want us to meet, so when can we meet? So you can tell by the tone that he's excited about it, you know? And so we begin to talk. I don't know what my parents are freaking out about. I mean, it's just college. I'm just enjoying college. And he uses the phrase enjoying college like he really likes the occasional football game. But that's not what the parents are worried about. They aren't like, I don't know if you noticed, he was at the TCU game and you need to talk to him. No. It's the other kind of, he says enjoying college because he, don't want to, he doesn't want to really admit what he's doing. And so he says to me, I don't know what my parents are freaking out about. I said, I know exactly what they're freaking out about. They had no idea that you were in the kind of mess that you're in, and I don't think you do either. It's like when you're a parent and you take your kid to the swimming pool and there's a shallow end and a deep end, and you're trying to pay attention, but there's lots of things happening. And so your child is in the shallow end, and they're kind of at that age. I think they can kind of at least know where the pool is shallow and deep. And you just take your eye off of them for a minute. And then all of a sudden you realize they're in over their head, and you panic. Ever had that feeling? And I said, your parents sent you off to college, and they asked, they told you, now you be good. And you went, okay. And by okay, you meant not a chance. But you never said that. And then all of a sudden, they realize where you're at, and you haven't realized it yet. They realize where you're at, and they are appropriately scared. And that helped them see, wow, I need to go home. Maybe you're actually like on your way home. Maybe, maybe you're past the realization 
And now you're in that um, awkward, nervous, I think my dad's going to take me back. Like, I, I think everything is going to be okay. Man, that's a long walk home, isn't it? Embarrassed. You, you know, this is what's interesting, you know somehow that nothing is going to be the same. It just can't be the same, not after all that I've done. I know they're going to tell me that everything is fine and that they love me. How many, how many of you have done something so bad and the people that you love have said it's okay and you so wanted to believe them, but you still didn't believe them? That's the journey home. And there are a lot of you right now and you're, you're kind of making the steps to returning to God, to returning to the faith community, to returning to a recognition of the word and how it can, and you're, you're, you're confused and afraid about what this is going to ultimately look like. And to you, I would say, God loves you and God cares about you. And the fact that you can't understand it is why we call it amazing. Last place that you could be, celebrating at the party. Now, I, I, I hope that's where all of us are at. I, I even thought to myself, can't I just assume that since we're all here and it's church and it's, that we're all, right? Like, aren't we all there? The answer is probably not. But some of us are. Some of us have come home and now it literally is. I, I love this, this phrase in the text. I like how he puts it. And so they began to celebrate like this is going to be going on and on and on. Like isn't that wonderful? I think one of the things that keeps us at the party, that keeps us in the, um, in the celebration, in the drowning pleasure of God's grace, the one thing that, that helps keeps us there is realizing that this is where God always wanted us to be. The thing that keeps us from kind of slipping into a, I'm not paying attention. Maybe I need to rethink these things. You know what? I like my freedom again. Is just re remembering the joy of celebrating how good and great God is. And maybe one of the best things, and one thing that I believe we should be doing more of, is talking about, like sharing with one another, the celebration of God's forgiveness in our lives. I said Andrea didn't like to share when our boys were younger about all of our problems. As they get older, I like doing more of it. Because I want my sons to know. I want you as a church to know, like from one prodigal to the next, I am so grateful for God's goodness to me. And I know what it's like to doubt that everything is going to be okay. And, and guess what? I found out as I read the gospel that it is okay. And I found out what I've experienced is that God's forgiveness is true. And what I actually believe about the church of God is that the most broken and the most um, lost of us can find the most genuine forgiveness and wholeness again. And we need to celebrate that more. I genuinely believe that. Maybe more prodigals would come home if they could hear the party that we're throwing. It could include them too, but it's for all of us. 
And that's the strange offense of God's grace. And that's why Jesus ends with this. So the father told the servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a, finger, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. We've been spending some time in reflection at the end of our study in God's word. Here are some things I want us to think about. And Diane's going to come and lead us up in a corporate prayer. These two things that are right there. Mark, they come, there we are. There we go. These two reflections. Number one, where am I? Where am I in this story? And where am I headed? And, and what I'm asking for is the courage for you and the discernment for you to assess where you are and where you're going. And secondly, who can I talk to about this? As I said, so much of our lives are, are troubled because we remain either silent or maybe we're even hearing some bad advice. But I believe that in the church of God, we've been given this incredible freedom and joy to do it together before God and in community. So Diane's going to lead us in a time of prayer as we reflect on these two things.